So today we start a new four-week series in the book of Jude. Uh, Jude is among the shortest letters in the New Testament. Uh, In your Bibles, it'll be a single page. It's a single chapter. That's 25 verses. Uh, But despite its brevity, Jude had profound things to say to the church, and he still has profound things to say to us today. Uh, Things that we need to hear if we're going to be a community that is renewed by the gospel in such a way that we're a distinct community within this city. A community that is not just distinct, but a community that seeks the common good and the renewal of our own city. We need what Jude has to say to us. Uh, But before we get into the letter itself, I want to talk a little bit about the letter. Uh, We know that it was written by Jude. You can thank scholars and anyone who's able to read. Uh, If you look at the first verse, we read, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Uh, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. These are the only designating marks we have when we ask the question, who is Jude? Uh, But we know throughout the Gospels in Matthew and Mark uh, that Jesus had two half-brothers. He had a few few more, but two we get by name, uh, James and Jude. And when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, Uh, He he refers to James as as the leader of the Jerusalem church and as the Lord's brother. And since this is the only set of James and Jude that we're aware of, uh, most scholars generally agree that Jude is most likely the half-brother of Jesus. And and I think there's good evidence for that. There's people who can test that. Uh, You can read that if you're interested in it. I can refer you to that. But I think the the overwhelming evidence is that Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this letter. And so if we accept that premise, it's fair to say that the letter was written in the later part of the first century, somewhere between 70 and 90 AD. Uh, Now, uh, we talked about this when we went through Philippians, but when you uh, study a letter in the New Testament, it's important to keep in mind that you're reading somebody else's mail. Uh, And so it's very polite to ask, whose mail are we reading? Uh, The answer for Jude is we don't know. Uh, unlike many of the other letters in the New Testament, he, this letter isn't addressed to a specific church. It's not addressed to Corinth or, or Galatia. Um, Jude either left this detail out or he wrote a letter that he intended to be passed through many churches. We can't know for certain. But given the amount of uh, references he has to Hebrew writings and the Hebrew scriptures, it's safe to assume that the churches he was predominantly speaking to or the church he was predominantly speaking to uh, was made up of Jewish Christians because they would have shared this common language that he used. Uh, What we do know, though, from verse 1, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of geography, the church is made up of those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for in Christ Jesus. And also, what we know for certain is the purpose of this letter, and this is where we're going to dwell this morning. Jude makes this explicit in verse 3. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude understood that we face pressures within the world, within our church, within our souls, which press down against our faith. Pressures that constantly challenge us to live by other stories and narratives put forth by our culture and other people. And Jude writes to remind the church, past and present, that we must contend for the faith the faith that was once delivered. And so Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, is writing to the early church in the first century, reminding them, contend for the faith, the true, uncompromised faith, amidst the many pressures that press down against faith. 
So this week, we start at the beginning, verses 1 through 4, and I want to focus on three things. Uh, the contention, the ungodly, and the beloved. So open your Bibles with me to Jude. Uh, we'll begin in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And on that note, we're going to deal with the condemnation stuff next week. Uh, ungodly people preferred the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, to get to the heartbeat of Jude's letter, we have to focus in on verse 3, which is the reason he wrote, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith. This is the motivation that drives and steers the whole letter. Everything that Jude will go on to say is because of this motivating factor. But he starts out by making a concession. He says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Jude wanted to talk about the content of our faith, what he calls our common salvation. He wanted to talk about the gospel. He wanted to dig into the gospel and marvel in what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus does in us. Because we never outgrow our need to hear the gospel. We can never plumb the depths of the beauty of the gospel. We don't need self-help manuals. We don't need resolutions. We don't need some more advice. We need the gospel uh, expounded in its beauty time after time after time again. Jude wants to do this for the church. And whether you've followed Jesus for a long time, whether you're figuring out if Jesus really is Lord, whether you just don't care, we all share this common need in the gospel. We need Jesus to save. Because I can't save you, you can't save yourself, we can't save one another. And the fact is, in the Christian life, and Jude understands this, uh, we need to dig into the depths of the gospel because the Christian life is a reality of continually learning that we need Jesus, that we're more broken than we dare admit, and that we continue to progress in seeing how broken we are. But simultaneously, we continue to learn just how much God loves us. And then we see in the middle this grace that overcomes the gap between God's holiness and our brokenness and the love that drives him to save us. We need to hear about this over and over again. And Jude was eager to write about this. He found it, but he says he found it necessary. He was eager, but he found it necessary to write, to contend for the faith. While he was eager to build up the church in the content of their faith, he found it more necessary to remind them of the context of their faith. Because while the gospel is what we need, the pressures we face in life seem to tell us otherwise. Faith in Jesus doesn't take place in this isolated, bubble boy-like existence. It doesn't take place in a sterilized, safe world. It takes place within a world that challenges what we believe and can cause us to question our faith. Our faith takes place in a world where faith is contested. And we face these sort of pressures every single day. 
And the pressure, you know, it might show up in your home and your family. Maybe your significant other doesn't share your faith or your parents or your close friends or your, your kids. And you look to these people. You look to people you love. People who by any standard are pretty good people. Who, who don't share your beliefs. And you start asking yourself, does my faith really make a difference? And do they really need faith? And the pressure, it might just show up in, in school or in work or walking down Robson Street. You know, the messages we're bombarded with. You know, you need education. Education is what you need. A career is what will provide. This shirt or this meal or whatever, that'll make you feel better. And if we're honest, these things do make us feel better at times. They do play a factor in our overall contentment. And so you start asking, is faith really what I need? Is God really the one who provides? This pressure bubbles up all the time. You know, it can be the, the material evidence of the universe that people use to suggest that there is no need for a creator. You know, it can be the, the, the message of radical inclusion and tolerance that our city teaches and preaches day after day. And you look at these things and you think, you know what, they're plausible. Does my faith really explain the world? Does, does my faith really offer a better world for all? These pressures within our relationships, within our lives, within the city, they press down against us and they make us start reconsidering our faith. And we start asking, can faith really survive in our day-to-day -day lives? Jude, he understands these pressures. He knows that we're torn in various directions. But it's amid these very pressures that Jude says our faith is made and refined. It's in this sort of space with pressures against us that we're called to contend for the faith. And the word Jude uses for contend, um, it, it's to exert intense effort, to strive diligently after something, to give it your all, because the faith that we've inherited, the faith once delivered, is unchanging. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this remains true whether we feel like it's true or not. And Jesus is Lord over all things, not just our souls, but every sphere of your life. And that remains true whether we believe it or not. And our faith is in this reality. But living in light of this reality isn't just a switch we can hit. We can't just flip on the autopilot and coast forward. We have to contend for our faith in the midst of these pressures. And we do ourselves no favors uh, if we try to convince ourselves that faith in this day and age is just a walk in the park. Uh, it can be challenging, it can be scary, and at times it can feel like our faith is slipping through our fingertips. And so we understand all too well why Jude says, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Because there's other contenders in the world, and they carry weight and they carry challenge. And if we're not careful, over time, they will shape how we see ourselves and our place within the world. But when Jude says contend for the faith, he doesn't just list a bunch of theological doctrines we should uphold. He doesn't just say, like, hold on really tight to orthodoxy. He cares about these things. But when he says the faith once delivered, the, he means the historic faith of Jesus Christ passed down from Christ to his apostles and onward. But it's not just the theology and the creeds that Jude has in mind. It's the reality that our faith in Jesus Christ also defines 
who we are. It's been really interesting watching my daughter Ansley develop uh, self-awareness. Right? And uh, she, she's playing this new game with Julia and I in the morning. She crawls into our bed and, and she'll, she'll kind of point on our chests and be like, my mama. And then she'll be like, my dada. And then she'll be like, the bubba. And uh, it's super cute. And, and sometimes we're like, well, who's the bubba's name? And she'll be like, as we. Uh, and, and she knows in relation to Julia and myself that she's the bubba. But she can't really understand what it means to be the Bubba outside of being in relationship with us. You know, we could read her a storybook at night about a mother and a father who loves their daughter, and she could get some head knowledge over time about what this means. But she can't really know what it means to be our Bubba, the loved Bubba, uh, outside of being in relationship with her mama and her dada. And over time, this relationship will help form how she sees herself. Over time, prayerfully and hopefully, our love will shape her into who she becomes. In a similar way, we can't really understand who we are outside of our relation to Jesus. So when Jude says, contend for the faith, in the context of his letter, we should hear him saying, amid all the pressures you face, contend for who Jesus says you are. And he gives us two categories of people, the ungodly and the beloved. The ungodly and the beloved. And I recognize the the, the word ungodly, it can sound very harsh. Um, But I want us to see why Jude uses this term and why he uses these terms. Because the beloved and the ungodly, they're not defined in relation to one another. It's not like the the beloved group looks at the ungodly group and says, well, I'm not that group, so I must be beloved. And it's not like the ungodly group looks at the beloved group and says, well, I must be ungodly. In fact, Jude will go on to show that these categories are cut and dry. It's actually very hard to figure out which group is which. But both groups, the beloved and the ungodly, know who they are in their relation to God. Their identity is based on how they relate to God. So I want to talk about the ungodly first, because the ungodly is a lot of fun, isn't it? That's what you want to hear on the first Sunday of the year. Uh, Look at verse 4. Jude calls the church to contend for the faith because certain people, certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's difficult to imagine how alarming this would be, don't you think? It's one thing to be a welcoming community, to intentionally invite people who don't share our beliefs to be a part of our community and to start asking the question, is Jesus really who he said he is? But to hear that a group of people crept in, crept in, unnoticed, who intentionally distort the gospel, this should cause alarm. It's a huge concern. The issue within the early church that Jude is writing to, it's not just pressures out in the world, it's actually pressures from within their own community. And this should remind us that the pressures we face that press against our faith often hit too close to home. We might even face them in our own community of faith. And Jude says to this group of people, uh, he says about them, uh, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. 
What he means is that they use grace to justify doing whatever they want. That's sensuality. It's debauchery. It's it's rampant hedonism. They hear of God's grace, of God forgiving all sins, and so they conclude, well, I can do whatever I want then because grace covers it. But this is a cheap imitation of grace. This is a perversion of grace. They distort it so much that it's actually not grace at all. It's more like selfishness or greed rather than grace. Because while uh, grace covers all our sins, grace also changes our hearts. Grace makes us want to have a restrained freedom, a freedom brought in alignment with Jesus' wisdom and righteousness and desires for us. Grace doesn't lead to this unrestrained freedom, completely doing whatever I want, whenever I want. And this is why Jude introduces himself as Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Jude doesn't uh, pull rank. He doesn't say, look, I'm, I'm the Lord's brother. You better do what I say. He says, yeah, I'm James's brother, but I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I do what Christ wants for my life. Where he goes, I go. I do what he says. But the, the real problem with the, this group, the ungodly, it's not just that they are distorting grace or misunderstand grace. It's that they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And the word deny here, it carries two senses. Uh, it, it's first the, refuse to, the refusal to consent to what Jesus wants in their lives. Hence the misuse of grace. But second, it's it's to deny the truth about who Jesus is. Jude's really intentional about describing Jesus here. Jesus is our master and Lord. In essence, the ungodly, they're denying Jesus' authority. By their estimation, Jesus is not Lord. He is not master. He does not have the authority to make demands upon their lives. And so this group of people, they don't define themselves in relationship to God, they define themselves on their own terms. I'm the master of my own domain. I'm the Lord of my life. I know what I need to be satisfied and content and to find wholeness in this world. And so as a result, in relation to God, they are ungodly. In other words, they're not godlike. It just makes sense. It's like the accurate description of, of someone who lives that way. That doesn't have any interest in God. How else would you describe yourself? I'm not godly. It doesn't have to be offending. It's just true. Um, But what we have to see is that the the essence of the way that this group of people living within Jude's context um, is that they're abusing grace to indulge in pleasure, to indulge in the things that they want to do. And whatever piece of Jesus that they they want, you know, if, if they're using doctrines the way that it seems that they're using them, It's only to their advantage. They might understand the doctrine of grace slightly, but they only use it to to use it to their own needs and desires, not the desires of God and Christ. And so while these people, they're actively living this way in Jews' time, I think in our context, it's a little more subtle and complex. I don't think we're as prone to actively deny God. I mean, some of you might be here. You might be a Christian. You might be actively denying God in your life. I don't know. I don't know of any of you doing that. But but I think what is common of most of us here in this room today is that we passively become ungodly. We might not actively be ungodly, but we're passively ungodly. Uh, You have faith in God. 
you want God in your life, but because of the pressures you face in the world, within your soul, within the church even, you compartmentalize your faith. You say, God can have access in this realm. You know, God can have the Sundays and even the small group and the occasional prayer night. He can have a little bit of my money, but that's it. He can't have any of this stuff over here, like how I bend my ethics uh, when I'm at work or with certain friends or how I manage my anger or my gossip or uh, how I control my plans for the future and what I want to accomplish. God can have authority over my life here, but he can't have authority over here. In other words, God can define some of your life, but not all of your life. So you're not ungodly per se, you're you're mid-godly, right? Like you're mid-level, mid-level ungodliness. Uh, and this passive rejection of God, though, I think is just as problematic as the active rejection of God. Because you're ultimately defining where God gets to have authority. You're saying what he gets to do and what he doesn't get to do. And so really, he doesn't have any authority over your life. Because you're dictating to God where he can have authority. You're the one in control. You're the one making the decisions. The posture of passive ungodliness is just as damaging as active ungodliness. I think in relation to Jesus and his authority, uh, many of us in this room, myself included, we're more ungodly than we like to admit. And many of us, we use grace as a cheap band-aid to cover up a lack of true repentance, a true willingness to turn with Christ's help away from the lives we once lived, away from the things that we know are contrary to God's word. And when we fail to contend for the faith, when we see ourselves as the ultimate authority over our lives, our faith will begin to erode. Uh, We'll either redefine it in a way that's more comfortable, we'll compromise it ultimately, and we might just throw it aside. But whatever happens, it will not be the faith that was once delivered to all of the saints. And while we might not be dealing with the exact same issue that Jude was dealing with, I think we see resonance in the underlying issue. Being ungodly is a real issue for us too. But we also need to consider the beloved. Jude says in verse 3, he starts out his exhortation by saying, Beloved, beloved, contend for the faith. And he actually flushed out the identity of the beloved in his introduction. Look at verse 1 again. He says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Again, this isn't isn't about a me versus them thing. This is about how someone relates to God. And for those who respond to Jesus with faith, they're given this remarkable identity, beloved. Beloved by God the Father. And Jude says three important words that I hope you'll remember as you leave today. The beloved are called, they're loved, and they're kept. The beloved are called. God is always the one who takes the initiative. God is always the one who calls people to himself. He desires no one to remain ungodly. He desires no one to remain outside of his presence. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, we see Jesus call broken people, prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, uh, you know, people who've been marginalized from society, hypocritical leaders, uh, murderous leaders, whoever. He will call everyone and anyone to respond to the message of the gospel. 
God is the one who goes out and calls with all authority. The beloved, they're called by God. They're called to be brought into his family. But the beloved are loved by God the Father. Those who respond to Christ in faith, they enter into the love of God. In Christ, we are loved. We're, We're brought into the presence of God, the God who is holy love. Therefore, we cannot be more or less loved. We are loved fully and perfectly by God the Father. And sometimes it's hard to to imagine, what is the love of the Father like? And I think going to the Psalms is always a good place to go. Uh, Psalm 103, 11. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Psalm 63, 3. Your steadfast love is better than life. The sort of love that God calls us into himself, his love, it is better than life. It's the source of life. It's beyond life. But the epitome of God's love on display is, of course, the famous verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We're loved by an infinite, inexhaustible, passionate love. A love that has given us the greatest possible gift that could ever be given. He has given us his son to reconcile us and to forgive us through his death on the cross and to bring us into his love. We are loved by God in Christ. As amazing as the calling and the love of God are, I think that the emphasis actually lands on what it means to be kept. I think that's actually the most comforting part of this passage. We are kept for Jesus. We are kept by Jesus. When we respond to God's call, when we enter into his love, it comes with the promise that we'll ultimately be kept for Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate prize. He's who we will inherit. Everything that is his, we are co-heirs of it eternal life, even his very likeness. But this verse in some of your Bibles can also be translated, kept by Jesus Christ. And in the context of Jude, this makes good sense. Because we have to contend for our faith against these pressures. But if we're honest, these pressures really seem like they might win. But we don't contend trying to uh, white-knuckle our way into eternity. We contend because Christ keeps us. Christ sustains us. Christ upholds us. He is the one who keeps us. He is the one who has contended for us against all of these pressures that press down against our faith. We're always responding to his work and his his initiative. We're kept by Jesus for Jesus. God has called us and because God loves us. That's what it means to be beloved. So why does Jude then make such a big deal about this, contending for who we are? I think it's because we constantly are asking this question, who am I? A million times a day, we ask the question, who am I? Consciously and unconsciously. You know, I'm my bank account. I'm my, I'm my uh, mortgage. I'm my job. I'm my, my, my resume. I'm my my accomplishments, on my iPad, on my whatever. But all these things, they're constantly trying to define our sense of who we are. And the problem is that we all too often listen to these pressures, consciously and unconsciously. 
They start to define who we think we are, why we are in this world. And we start asking the questions we asked earlier. Can, can faith really make a difference? Do we really need Jesus? Does God really provide? Does faith really make sense of the world? And Jude is reminding us all that yes, faith matters. And that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth contending for because Jesus is the one who doesn't stop contending for us. That's true grace, not perverted grace. You know, true grace uh, does not let us go. Yes, it forgives us of our sins over and over again. But grace is also the reality that God loves us far too much to leave us in the state that he first met us in. He wants to bring us out of our brokenness and our shame and our sins. Jesus keeps us in the love of God. This is the true grace that Jude wants us to contend for. If you contend for that identity, right, if, you, if you live out of that identity, so much more is in store. If you live by the narratives of the world, they're going to say you need this X, Y, and Z for contentment, for happiness, for peace, and for joy. But in Christ, Jude says there's so much more in store. Verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. In other words, you cannot exhaust what God has in store for you. You cannot exhaust the love and mercy and peace that is available through Christ Jesus. It will only increase and grow. So we contend for Jesus. We contend for our faith in him. We run towards the one who has called us and the one who contends for us because in him there is way more before us than anything we could ever leave behind us. As we wrestle through 2015, as we figure out what it means to be a community, we have to contend for our faith. We have to contend for true grace. But we get to live with this radical prayer. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied upon you. Amen.